Holy Father, it is that hope that continues to ignite a community on earth that passionately believes the promise is true. We shall behold him yet, our Savior and King. Our hearts have been swept up to your very throne room, as it were. Now we're back on earth. Your word is upon our laps, and in a moment it will move into our minds and hearts. Dear God, anoint Holy Scripture today. Let it be a clarion message, a clear truth that it might set us free through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. I must confess to you that I come to this moment here in this pulpit with foreboding and reticence, knowing all this week, knowing what it would be that would confront our attention on television, on the radio, and right here in person. We must confront the most dangerous truth of all. It is the truth about the Antichrist. A truth that is so dangerous, it absolutely does not surprise me. I, have, I, would, I did not wonder at all that Left Behind would leave it behind. I'm talking about Left Behind the movie. I'm talking about Left Behind the best-selling books. The truth is simply too dangerous a truth. It cannot be shared publicly for long without exacting a fearful price. And obviously, Left Behind has determined it will not pay that price. The Wall Street Journal just a few days ago came out with a report on the Left Behind movie announcing to the nation that $17.5 million were spent to produce that movie that has now, as you know, been released to the public these few days. $17.5 million invested by investors, but alas for the producers, because as the news reports come in, the public response on opening weekend and beyond has been both dismal and disappointing. You might recall that their goal was to simultaneously screen this movie, 3,800 theaters across America. But on opening weekend, 874 actually premiered the movie, bringing in only $2.2 million to offset that $17.5 million investment. We are confronting what left behind left behind. It's imperative we do. The whole nation talks now about this movie and these record-breaking books. What have we covered so far in our series, What Left Behind, Left Behind? We have noted, first of all, it is left behind the most urgent truth of all. We have noted, secondly, that it is left behind the greatest truth of all. The last time we were together, we noticed that it is left behind the most clarifying truth of all. And today, we shall carefully note the most dangerous truth of all. By the way, if you're watching on television right now or you're here in our audience, I hope if you're saying, well, you know, man, I haven't seen, I haven't seen number two or I didn't see number three, I'd like to invite you to go to our website, PM Church. In fact, let's put it on the television screen right now, pmchurch.org. We have a companion website called areyousearching.com. Go to those websites, jot it down quickly while you're watching. Go to those websites and click on the Left Behind Examinations. Take a look. You can be caught up. 
in a matter of uh, minutes, right there on your big computer screen. At what price does truth get left behind? I have a feeling all of us, no matter who we are, we can agree on this. Truth is worth any price. And so today, I want to share with you the most dangerous truth of all. Irrespective of the price that shall be paid, because this truth shall be shared. It is the truth of the Antichrist. Right there, I want to pivot to our study guide in your worship bulletin today. Our new study guide, I hope you'll pull it out. In fact, uh, our ushers, would you come in quickly, ushers? Hold your hand up. If you didn't get our study guide, I want everybody here, please, to get a study guide. These are yours to keep. We're going to fill these in over the next few moments. I want to say to those of you who are watching on television, you can also get this study guide by going to that website you jotted down just a moment ago, pmchurch.org. It's on your screen right now. Go to that website. The study guides are entered there. But I want to make sure that everybody gathered here in this university congregation has a study guide today. The very first line on the study guide, the truth about the Antichrist. And I'm thinking we need to get some study guides up here to our uh, musicians as well. The truth about the Antichrist. Write it in because the blank there is with the word Antichrist. Put that on the screen for you. The truth about the Antichrist. Please don't misunderstand me, ladies and gentlemen. I'm going to show you a video clip right now. Don't misunderstand me. Left Behind has not ignored... The Antichrist. In fact, it is very big on the Antichrist. It's just that they're wrong about the Antichrist. I'm going to show you a scene right now. The setting for the scene. Let me just set you up here. A little clip. Setting for the scene is in the United Nations, somewhere deep within the bosom of that great building in New York City, an administrative boardroom. Gathered around a mahogany table. You'll see them in just a moment. Several of the leading ambassadors of, of the world, two wealthy English financiers, some personal assistants, one journalist, and the newly elected Secretary General of the United Nations. He is a young Secretary General. He is young and blonde and blue-eyed and Romanian, and his name is Nikolai Carpathia. He is charismatic. He is smooth. He is controlling but disarming. This Romanian politician has, according to the books, risen up with breathtaking speed to a position of global leadership. He has the adulation of the masses, the adoration of the media. Nikolai Carpathia is going to become, according to the book, the dreaded Antichrist. Let's roll that clip now. Take a look at it with me, please. Cut in on it right there. The very next scene, for obvious reasons, we wouldn't show here anyway, since the... Uh, New Secretary General of the United Nations goes over to the security guard, takes his sidearm off, and actually assassinates the two English uh, financiers who are there. Then, through some kind of mind control, he gets the whole room to believe that, in fact, it was an act of suicide and, and murder. He was not involved at all, except for Buck Williams. You saw him there. Buck Williams, who is the journalist, lately become believer, setting up the antagonist for this whole plot, the Antichrist now. The Antichrist now prepares to lead the world, signs a treaty with Israel, launches in, you heard it just a moment ago, launches into this seven-year period where he will rule. Now, Tim LaHaye, the author of the Left Behind series, and our dispensationalist friends are making a very singular point. They are endeavoring to teach the nation and the world that the Antichrist in the very near future is going to suddenly show up. I want you to notice the words of Tim LaHaye. Let's put him on the screen now. Tim LaHaye, the author. Scripture indicates that there will be a great lie announced with the help of the media and perpetrated by a self-styled world leader. Let me warn you personally to beware of such a leader of humanity who may emerge from Europe. 
He will turn out to be a great deceiver who will step forward with signs and wonders that will be so impressive that many will believe he is of God. He will gain a great following among those who are left behind. This person is known in the Bible as the Antichrist. Now, that scene you just saw a moment ago, the, the secret rapture has already happened. There is no church on earth. They've all gone home with Jesus, according to the Left Behind series. Now he rules this Antichrist. And three and a half years into the seven-year rule, by the way, he is suddenly assassinated. The devil himself brings him back to life, plunging earth into a horrible final three and a half year, great tribulation, after which Christ returns, destroys the Antichrist, sets up his millennial kingdom. So teaches left behind. But here's the question, ladies and gentlemen. Is the Antichrist of left behind and evangelical dispensationalism, is it the Antichrist of Scripture? Open your Bible this morning and examine the evidence for yourself. Please open your Bible to a little book called Second Thessalonians. There is no question the Bible deals with the subject of the Antichrist. There is an Antichrist. But who is he? Where is he? When is he? And is he a he? Second Thessalonians. We're going to have to spend all morning finding Second Thessalonians. I know it's been a long time since you've been there. It's a hard book to find. But if you can find First and Second Corinthians, and then you've got Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, then First and Second Thessalonians. Too bad we don't all have the same page number, and I could call the page out to you. I want to go to the very passage that left behind hopes will support its teaching that the Antichrist is yet to come in the near future. Go, please, to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Open your Bible, please. Now, I hope, hold it. I am warning you, this is a dangerous truth. Because if the Bible does not teach that Jesus will return to this earth secretly to rapture his church, and you and I have already been to the Bible and discovered that, in fact, the Bible does not teach that, and if the Bible does not teach that those who are left behind have seven more years to get a second chance to get ready for Christ, and you and I have already discovered that the Bible does not teach a seven-year second chance, then if that's true, that means without a future seven-year tribulation, hey, where can there be an Antichrist to rule in it? And if the Antichrist is not yet to come, then could it be that the Antichrist has already come and is already here? Now, I don't mean already here as in already here, getting ready for this. Jerry Falwell, the very famous Baptist preacher, announced to the nation just a few months ago that he believes the Antichrist is already born and is growing up somewhere on earth. I don't mean already here in that regard. Could it be that he has already been here and is yet here? Well, we, we, we've, got to, we've got to go to the book. Second Thessalonians chapter 2. Let's start. I'm in the New American Standard Bible. Good translation, very little translation. Karen just gave me this book this last week. I want to share this translation with you. Chapter 2, verse 1. Now we request you, brethren. Those of you watching on TV, we'll put it on the screen for you. We, requ we request of you, brothers and sisters, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together with Him. Paul says, hey, before we go another sentence, I want to tell you, let's talk second coming today. That's what he's writing. So I want to talk about the second coming. And he uses a code word that early Christians know immediately. Yep, second coming. He uses the Greek word perusia. That word, you see it in your study guide there, that word is the Greek word for the second coming of Christ. No question. Everybody's going to agree this is the second coming. And by the way, that word is used throughout the New Testament that way. You remember the story about Jesus who walks out of the temple that, for the last time? You remember that? He said, I'm, I'm never going to put my sandals in this temple. 
The disciples are coming up to him that day in Jerusalem. And they say, oh, but Lord, look at this building. Wow. And Jesus said, I want to tell you something. The day is coming when there will not be one stone left upon another. Do, do you remember that story? You remember that? Yeah. They are so troubled by what Jesus has just said that in verse 3, Matthew 24, let's put it up on the screen. They come to Jesus. He's on the Mount of Olives. As he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately and they said, Tell us, when will these things happen? What will be the sign of your coming, Perusia, and the end of the age? We want to know Jesus. Matthew 24, one of the most fascinating chapters in the Bible. We don't have time today. We don't have time. But you see, the code word parousia, everybody knows, it means second coming. So Paul says, right back here in 2 Thessalonians, he says, Okay, folks, I want to I talk with you for a moment about Jesus' second coming. Oh, and by the way, he said, that's when we will be gathered together with Him. You see that in verse 1? He says, I want to talk to you about this gathering together to Him. You see, those who believe in the secret rapture say, Ah! That's it. That's when he gathers all his children to him. I want you to hold that thought there. This is a very critical point. Hang on to that. You're right. It is second coming and it is a gathering together to Christ. Paul says, let's talk about this. Let's read the first, uh, first two verses together. Now, we request you, brothers and sisters, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to Him, that you be not quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if it were from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Paul say, hey, 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 I don't know what's happening here, but I, I hear that you think we are saying that Jesus has already come. Hold it, hold it, hold it, Paul says. Relax. That's not the case. Relax. As the teenager in my home puts it, take a chill pill. Just, just, just relax. Come on, just, just calm down, Paul says. If the day of the Lord, the second coming of Christ, has already happened, something else would have had to have happened first. But it has not happened. And now Paul moves he moves into an ominous, ominous prophecy. Now, this is where the truth starts getting dangerous. Hold on, buckle in, because here we go. He says, Jesus can't have come yet because, verse 3, let's read verse 3, let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come. That means Jesus has not come unless, He will not come unless the apostasy comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Wow! Jesus cannot come yet, folks. Paul is telling him, hold it. He cannot come yet until the ominous prophecies about the Antichrist first come true. He said, oh, come on, Dwight, nice try. I did not read the word Antichrist once in those lines we just read it. My friend, you were absolutely right. You didn't read it. In fact, do you know this? The, the name Antichrist appears only five times in all of Scripture. In fact, I want you to get that down here. And so let's just move into our study guide here. We just read verses 3 and 4. You see that in the margin there. Those of you that want to go on to our pmchurch.org, you can get this study guide. It says, a description of the blank. Put in the word Antichrist. Would you put that in? Because we just read a description of the Antichrist. We just read it. But, the next line, there are, actually, this astounds people, there are only five references, right in the number five. There are five references 
in the Bible to the Antichrist. What I want to do very quickly, because they're all clustered right together. I want you to see all five of them so that you get a strong biblical sense of what the, of, of what the Antichrist really is. All right? Let's do this. Take it. Just hit, hit, hit the pause button for Second Thessalonians. Go. Oh, I know you can find this book. First John. Go to the end of the Bible, just before the book of Revelation. John wrote three little epistles. We'll go to First John. You can count them. Write them down. All five references in the Bible, and they're all in the New, in the New Testament, to the word Antichrist. Let's take a look at these. First uh, John chapter two. We'll begin in verse eighteen. First John two verse eighteen. Children. It is the last hour, and just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, there's the first mention, even now many Antichrists, there's the second, many Antichrists have appeared. From this we know it is the last hour. Key point number one, write it in on your study guide. Key point number one, Antichrist is not only singular, it is also what? Plural, write in the word plural. We just said there are many Antichrists. Oh, wait a minute. Left behind says there's only one. He comes at the end of time. Wrong. Wrong. They should have looked at these five references first. There are many antichrists. Okay, key point number one. Well, we can't linger there. Let's go to uh, verse 22 in the same chapter of 1 John 2. Who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. Would you jot that down in your study guide, please? Key point number two, antichristos. That's, see, antichrist is a Greek word. Just put English letters to it. Antichristos means instead of Christ. You see, I thought anti meant I'm against, I'm anti this, I'm anti that. Actually, it doesn't. In the Greek, it means instead. Of course, if somebody is instead of Christ, he's going to end up being against Christ, isn't he? Yeah. So write in the word instead of Christ. And please note from the verse, it seeks to usurp the place of Christ, right in the, the name Christ, to usurp the, usurp the place of Christ in the community of Christ. We just read that, 1 John 2, 22. So, oh, Dwight, this would be fascinating. Let's just slow down here and really... No, 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 no. We want to get back to 2 Thessalonians. So we'll, just, we'll, we'll speed read this. Let's go to the third key point. Let's write down here in verse 26. Chapter 2, verse 26, John writing, These things I have written to you concerning those who are trying to what? They're trying to deceive you. Key point number three, write it in. Deception is the Antichrist's dominant strategy. He's going to work by deception. All right, let's go to number four. We don't need to linger here. Chapter four. Just turn the page. Go to 1 John chapter four. Let's pick it up in verse two. 1 John 4, verse 2, by this you know that the Spirit of God, no, by this you know rather the Spirit of God, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God, this is the Spirit of the Antichrist, of which you have heard that it is coming, and now it is already in the world. Key point number four, write it in, the Antichrist is already in the world. When was First John written? It was written at the end of the first century. Ladies and gentlemen, that is 1900 years ago. The Antichrist, it can't be something yet to come when John says it's already here. You get that? It's already here. He said, Dwight, are you inventing this? No. You making this up? No. We're just reading scripture. There's one more. There are only five. One more. This is over in little Second John. Second John is so short it doesn't have chapters. 
Isn't that a great way to write a letter? Forget a lot of chapters. Just get to the point. Write a few verses. That's what John did in the second John. So we just drop down to verse 7. Notice this one. Key point number 5. Let's read verse 7 first. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. This is the deceiver and the antichrist. Now, that's a very key point. I hope you get it. Jot it. In fact, you'll, jot, you'll get it when you jot it down. The Antichrist begins in the church, but ends up in the world of darkness. Right in the word church and then the word darkness. Because he says the Antichrist has gone out from us. See, he once was in the church. The Antichrist has gone out from us. Key point. Antichrist begins in the church. There they are, ladies and gentlemen. Let me put it on the screen for those of you watching on television. Those of you here, just review your key points. Make sure you have them. Here they are. Five unequivocal Affirmations about the Antichrist. Number one, it cannot be a single man, for it is plural. Number two, it seeks to usurp the place of the Son and the Father. Number three, it works by deception. Number four, it was already at work in the time of the early church. And number five, it begins in the church, but through deception, leads its followers into the world. I want to be as clear as I can be, but from John's statements, and we've only read these five, the left-behind theory loses all biblical credibility when, he says, when it says the Antichrist is yet to come a single evil pagan man just at the end of time. Hey, you're not arguing with me. You're arguing with Holy Scripture. We just saw five clear di distinctions of the Antichrist. It's not future. It's already here. It's not a single man. It's plural. It's not pagan. It starts in the church. While Left Behind keeps pointing to the future, could it be, could it be there is already, there is already the Antichrist positioning itself for Earth's last chapter. Left Behind says, no, 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 not here, not, wait till Jesus comes secretly. No. Are they right? Let's go back to 2 Thessalonians. Let's go back to 2 Thessalonians. Incredible, clarion unanimity between John and Paul. Not a shred of disagreement. And I want you to see it from 2 Thessalonians 2, because that's the passage left behind uses to say he's coming yet in the future. Take a look at this. We'll go back to 2 Thessalonians. Unhit the pause button now. Let that pause button off. Let's start playing back in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Let's read verse 3. We read it a moment ago. Let's go back to it. Let no one in any way deceive you, for it, Jesus, will not come unless the apostasy comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. Ladies and gentlemen, Paul has just said very clearly. How, how can you argue with Paul? Paul says Jesus can't come back until the Antichrist is already here. Is that clear? He just said it. <laughs> Jesus hasn't come yet. He can't come yet because the Antichrist has to come first. Left behind has it backwards. Says Jesus comes, then the Antichrist. No, can't. The Antichrist has to come first, we just read. It has to come first before Christ returns. Oh, by the way, our friends from left behind would go to verse 1 and say, well, that's clearly, the, that's clearly the secret coming of Christ because it says He gathers the church. When Jesus comes to secretly gather the church, that's what they call the secret rapture. But let it be known here, let it be seen from the very passage they quote, you can't, let's just, we'll just give them the rapture. You can't have the rapture even until the Antichrist first is revealed. They got it backwards. 
I say that kindly, but I need to warn you. Because it may be it's all a smokescreen for another Antichrist. Nobody is watching right now. All right, well, let's go to our key point here. Let's go back to our study guide. Key point number one. This is now Paul's key point number one. Would you write it in, please? The great apostasy of the Antichrist must come. What would be the word there? Yep, you're right. Before. Write the word before, the preposition. Is that an adverb? It was, is, is before a preposition or an adverb? University students, for a million dollars. Wouldn't that be great? Want to become, what was it? Want to become a millionaire? Yeah. Boy, I'd love to get that question because I'm not sure the answer. All right. But write in the word before. I think it's an adverb, isn't it? It's an adverb because it tells when before. Okay, let's write in the word before. Key point number one, the great apostasy of the Antichrist must come before the second coming of Christ. Well, let's go to... In fact, I want to show you verse 8. Take a look at verse 8 right here. We won't go to verse 8 again. Let's just get it, get it out of the way right now. Paul says, Then that lawless one, that's the Antichrist, will be revealed whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. You see... Same word, perusia, by the way, the same word. And our friends want to say, well, that's the glorious appearing. My friend, you can't do that. You Come on, stop, stop. You can't do that. The same word is used in verse 8 as in verse 1. It's the same coming of Christ. Jesus will destroy the Antichrist when He comes. can't have an Antichrist after He comes. It has to be there when He returns. Well, you can be very confident, by the way, about that word before. All right, but let's go. Let's move on. We got to move. Let's go to uh, reread verse three, because there's another critical point here. Verse three, let no one in any way deceive you for it, the coming of Christ. It will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. Oh, my. In fact, I want to give the key point before proving it. Let's go to the study guide and let's write it in here and say, okay, do I prove it now? Well, let's first get it down. The Antichrist is Inside the church of Christ, not what? Not outside. Right in those two words. Inside the church of Christ, not outside. Paul has just made that point. Notice what he calls the Antichrist here. He calls him, he calls him uh, the son of lawlessness. Some of your Bibles say, the King James says, the man of sin. Calls him here, in my translation, the son of destruction. Some of yours calls him the, the son of perdition. Have you ever heard those words, son of perdition, before? Think back to the gospel story. Have you ever heard the words, son of perdition, before? Bing, your light comes on. You're right. Jesus spoke those words about Judas. Let's take a look at John chapter 17, Christ's last prayer before his crucifixion. John 17, verse 12. Jesus is praying to the Father right here as we pick him up. While I was with them, Father, I was keeping them in your name, my disciples, which you have given me, and I guarded them, and not one of them, my twelve, not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, so that the Scripture would be fulfilled. What's the point? The point is, son of perdition refers to someone who is a traitor inside the community of faith. Please note, Paul takes the very words Jesus used to describe Judas. He says, that is the Antichrist in the heart in the very center of the community of faith. Oh, oh, left behind. I guess he won't be an evil pagan man out there. No, no, no. The Antichrist comes as a traitor inside the community of faith. 
But left behind says, well, but wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. It says here in verse 4, let's read verse 4. This Antichrist who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Aha, Dwight, see, he's going to go back to the Jewish temple. The third temple will be rebuilt and the Antichrist will appear. You saw that in the clip a moment ago. The Antichrist will appear in the temple. Wrong, wrong, wrong. You know how I know? Because when Paul ever, whenever Paul uses the words, nous, the temple of God, except for one time, he always refers to the community of Christ. The only other time he says, your body is the temple. Take a look at this. Second, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16. Do you not know you, plural, are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? Whenever you read temple of God, that means community of Christ. One more. Ephesians chapter 2. Take a note of this, please. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints. You are of God's household. Good. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone, some buildings getting built here, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a, read it out loud with me, a holy what? A holy temple. Ladies and gentlemen, whenever Paul uses the phrase temple of God, he is referring to the church of Christ. So it is a Judas. Whoever this Antichrist is comes inside the church as a traitor. All right. Both Paul and John make the same identical key point. Well, let's go back because Paul has two more key points before we can sit down. Uh, verse 3, let's read it again. Let no one in any way deceive you, for the day of Christ will not come. It will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God. Notice this. Displaying himself as being God. Whatever this Antichrist power is, it's not a dumb power. The Antichrist never comes out and says, Hey, I am God. Because nobody would believe it. So, he just displays himself. And the world says, I wonder if this might not be God. Would you write it down, please? It's key point number three. The Antichrist usurps. What does the word usurp mean? takes the place of God, right in the name God. The Antichrist usurps the place of God within the church of Christ. Ladies and gentlemen, we are letting the Bible interpret itself. You don't have to take my word for a single shred of evidence. Just go to the book. All right, well, Paul needs to make one more key point here. So let's read verses 5 through 7. Do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you all of this? See, we need to find out who is this power, this Antichrist power. Paul says in verse 5, don't you remember when I was there with you in Thessalonica? One of our, one of our professors here, Ellie Economou, who teaches Greek at Andrews University. That's her hometown of Thessalonica. So he's writing to the Christians in Thessalonica. He says, hey, you guys remember when I was there, what I told you? Now, verse 6, and you know... What restrains him now 
so that in his time he will be revealed. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. You say, come on, Dwight, what in the world is Paul saying? Let's do the study guide first and then unpack it. Final point, key point number four. The Antichrist is unleashed when the Roman, would you write in the name Roman, when the Roman Empire collapses. Oh boy, Paul is really tiptoeing now. He's choosing every word extremely carefully because he's writing to a fledgling little Christian community already in the Roman Empire. Paul cannot risk bringing any further persecution to the church in Thessalonica. You know why? Because in chapter 1 of the same book, he says, you are already being persecuted. Let's put it up on the screen. 2 Thessalonians 1 verse 4, Therefore we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions you endure. Paul says, hey guys, I already know you're being persecuted for your faith. I will not put a word in writing that will jeopardize your standing in that Roman community. Paul cannot say, remember when I was there, I told you about the Roman Empire, it's going to fall. If he says, a word, if he breathes a word, they'll call them all. Traitors to the empire. He cannot. He says. He, he says. Look. Do you remember when I was there? What I told you? That there is a power right now holding the antichrist back. But when that power collapses, the antichrist comes. Do you remember? I told you. Paul is a Jew, a loyal Jew, very obviously is steeped and well schooled. In the book of Daniel, he's taught his young disciples that ominous prophecy. But he can't say, like Daniel says, remember Rome? He can't breathe a word. Although 2 Thessalonians 2 and Daniel 7 are echoes of each other. You say, listen, what is Paul referring to? I want to end with Daniel chapter 7. You see, Paul is saying, do you remember when I was there? Remember what I taught you. Let's put Daniel 7. It is a famous, famous vision that identifies the Antichrist with, with, with dangerous clarity. This is why the truth is so dangerous. This is what will expose. That's why Paul cannot say. He cannot say. He said, I, I just, do, do you remember? Okay, let's go to Daniel. Daniel chapter 7, verse 3. Daniel was in vision. He said, And I saw four great beasts were coming up from the sea, different from one another. Let's put a picture in front of our minds. I want you to picture those beasts. Whoa, take a look at your television screen now. Look at that. Nathan Green. You remember Nathan Green who was here just a few weeks ago who shared his story? I interviewed him up here at the beginning of this series. Nathan Green has painted Daniel, Daniel 7's vision. One of the beasts is alive. That's the first one to come out. Then behind the lion comes that bear-like beast. Behind the bear, a four-headed leopard. And behind the leopard, look at that television screen right now, there is a beast of nondescript horror. We're going to put that beast in a big way on the screen in just a moment. But let's, let's, let's leave the four beasts for a moment. Because Daniel sees these beasts coming out and he goes to an angel standing there. He says, tell me. Let's put the next text up. He says, tell me. I approached, this is verse 16 of Daniel 7. I approached one of those who were standing by and I began asking him the exact meaning of all this. So he told me and he made known to me the interpretation of these things. These four great beasts, which are four in number, are four kings or kingdoms who will arise from the earth. But Daniel's saying, I want to know number four, man. I want to know number four. 
What is number four? Let's put number four up on the screen. Thus he said to me, the fourth beast will be a fourth kingdom on earth, which will be different from all the other kingdoms and will devour the whole earth and tread it down and crush it. Read one. Look at that. There you got it. Well, how'd you like to run into that in the middle of the night, huh? Ooh. Now, folks, this is not an inspired picture. This is an artist's imagination. But you see the nondescript beast. You see him there on your monitor with a horn. Because Daniel's fascinated. He said a horn came up. A horn came up among ten horns, plucked three of them. The horn had eyes like a man, spoke boastful words with a mouth. Daniel says, man, oh man, oh man, what is this thing? The angel says, I'm going to tell you. Okay, let's go back. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom, ten kings will arise. Hold it right there. You know, I have this new study, uh, new study Bible, and in my study Bible, it will show you the four world empires from the time of Daniel on. Do you know what they are? Number one, it's, uh, number one is Babylon. Number two is Medo-Persian. Number three is Greece. Come on, historians. Who is number four? Number four is Rome. Every historian knows the fourth world empire in the West is the empire of Rome. Out of Rome, there will come this horn. It's surrounded. Let's go back to the screen now. The horn is surrounded by ten horns. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom, the kingdom of Rome, when Rome falls, out of this kingdom, ten kings will arise. Ten barbarian tribes, if you want to just go to history and check it out. And another will arise after them, and he will be different from the previous ones, and he will subdue. He will pluck up. Three of those kingdoms. He will speak this little horn power, also known as the Antichrist. He will speak out against the Most High. He will wear down the saints of the Highest One. And he will intend to make alterations in times and in law. And they, the saints, will be given into his hands for a time, times, and half a time. Oh, hold it right there. I want to put that nondescript beast. Take a look at that screen. I want to tell you while you're looking at the screen what's happening. That, that power is going to come after the Roman Empire. Do you know when the Roman Empire fell? 476 A.D. It was sacked by the barbarians. Sometime after 476, there would come a new power right out of Rome. You take a look at there. It's that little horn power. And it would, it would rule for time, times, and half a time. In the Hebrew, that's three and a half years. But remember, in Bible prophecy, a day equals how much? Tell me. A day equals how much? A day equals one year. So if you have three and a half years, that's 1,260 days. But really, it's 1,260 what? This power is going to rule during the dark and middle ages for over a thousand years. It will be a religious power because it will deal with God. It will be political because it will pluck up any opposition politically. It is a religio-political power. And it will think to change times and laws. Let's put the law of God on the screen. It's going to come along during that one, over 1,000 year reign. It will come along to that law and it will say, don't like commandment two. It says, thou shalt not have any other graven images. Get rid of two. It chisels two out of that stone. And in order to get ten, it will split number ten into two parts. It will change the law. Oh, by the way, it will change time. Times and law. And so it will come to the Creator's only repeat symbol and sign of God's creatorship. And it will take the seventh day Sabbath and it will crush that day and say, as a sign of our authority, we choose the day of the sun. The Baal gods. The pantheon of paganism. All the pantheons had the sun as the high power. Even Egypt. It says we will take Sunday. And that will become the day of our authority. I'm telling you, ladies and gentlemen, it is a breathtaking 
revelation here of a power known eventually as the Antichrist power that would, for a bloody millennium, rule and hold sway over earth, Western civilization. Who is this little horn power? Who is this man of lawlessness? Who is this traitor that would grow up within the community of Christ and would usurp the place of Christ and finally announce, you, if you need forgiveness, come to me. Not to him. Come to me. And I will forgive you on his behalf. Who is this Antichrist power? Who is this power that takes his seat in the temple of God displaying himself as God. You know what? I'm not going to answer that question. I'm not going to answer it. Instead, I'm going to turn to the single human being who more than any other human in all history has been written about outside of the Lord Jesus Himself. More than any other religious figure, this man has been written about. In 1528, this man got a hold of, a, of an old commentary from England, written by a man named John Purvey, an Englishman who was a follower of a, of a reformer named John Wycliffe. And when Martin Luther, that's the man who's been written about more than any other man in all of the religious history outside of Jesus Christ, when Martin Luther found that commentary, he said, Oh my, I have to reprint in the little village of Wittenberg where I have been. He said, I have to reprint that commentary. And he wrote a preface for it. Here's the preface. Notice why he wanted that commentary reprinted. Martin Luther's words, This preface, noble reader, you may understand, was written by us for this reason, that we might make known to the world that we are not the first to interpret the papacy as the kingdom of the Antichrist. Read on. For many years prior to us, so many and so great men whose number is large and their memory eternal have attempted this so clearly and openly and that with great spirit and force that those who were driven by the fury of the papal tyranny into the farthest boundaries of the earth and suffering the most atrocious tortures, nevertheless bravely and faithfully persisted in the confession of truth. What truth? The Great Reformation uncovered, rediscovered two shining truths. Truth number one, rediscovered the truth about Christ. Truth number two, rediscovered the truth about the Antichrist. Two truths. It's what left behind, left behind. That's what Martin Luther found. That's what that long line of reformers discovered. The truth about Christ and the truth about the Antichrist. In fact, it was so serious, this truth talk, that the gathering of this religio-political power in its Fifth Lateran Council in 1516 declared that it was against the law to either write or teach about the Antichrist. That's the truth. That's the truth. The truth that left behind has left behind. That the Antichrist, in fact, is a religio-political power that has already ruled the world for over a thousand years. A power that would be wounded, its leader taken captive, but in the 20th century, a wound that would be healed. And the Scriptures declare the whole world in the end will follow that Antichrist. Wow! Who is this power 
that sits in the very temple of God, as Paul writes in 2 Thessalonians 2. I want you to listen to what the British Parliament... We have some Britishers here. The British Parliament voted these very words, the Westminster Confession, back in 1647. The English voted this. Let's notice what they voted. Put it on the screen. The Westminster Confession of Faith. There is no other head of the church but the Lord Jesus Christ. Nor can the Pope of Rome in any sense be head thereof, but is that Antichrist, that man of sin and son of perdition, 2 Thessalonians 2, that exalteth himself in the church against Christ and all that is called God. The Parliament voted those words in 1647. You don't need me to answer the question who the Antichrist is. It has already been thunderously answered in the course the history of Christianity. Who is this power of Daniel 7 and 2 Thessalonians 2 and Revelation 13, which we will not go to? Who is this power? Let me put up the words of a contemporary writer, Michael de Semlian, in his book, All Roads Lead to Rome. Look at these words. Wycliffe, Tyndale, Luther, Calvin, Cranmer. In the 17th century, John Bunyan the translators of the King James Bible, and the men who published the Westminster and Baptist Confessions of Faith, Sir Isaac Newton, John Wesley, Whitfield, that's George Whitfield, Jonathan Edwards, and more recently Spurgeon, Bishop J.C. Riley, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, these men among countless others all saw the office of the papacy as the Antichrist. Who is this power? I'm not going to answer the question. I'm not going to answer that question. It has already been answered. It has already been established. You don't need me to tell you. History verifies who this Antichrist power is. I'm looking at a young audience here. I'm looking at young adults who are preparing to go out for the Lord Jesus Christ in every career imaginable. I want to say in the hearing of some young man here, I want to say in the hearing of some young woman here, there is a message yet. There is a prophecy yet that must be told to the world. The Bible says there'll be three angels at the end of time. Two-thirds of those angels are consumed with a passion for the truth about the Antichrist. Two-thirds of the three angels' messages have to do with the Antichrist. It must matter to God that some power has sought to usurp His position, God's position, in the community of faith. It must matter to God. Two-thirds of His final appeal to human race. Two-thirds of the appeal is to tell the truth about the Antichrist. There's a man here. There's a young woman here that will be anointed by the Holy Spirit and will lose her timidity, and will lose his fearless fearfulness, and he will stand up someday. I was reading this last week. One of the great historians, his name is Elie Froome. He wrote this sentence, and I want to share this sentence with you. Whoa, look at this sentence. Froome writes, Nothing in, in this old world is more powerful than a prophetic truth whose time has come. Nothing is more powerful then a prophetic truth whose time has come. Some of you sitting right here are going to get tapped on the shoulder. Some of you are getting rather uncomfortable right now and saying, boy, I wish you'd get off of this. I'm not going to get off of it. There are some of you sitting right here who will be tapped on the shoulder by the mighty third person of the Godhead and you will be asked, 
Do you believe those three angels? Two-thirds of that truth you must also tell. You will be asked. You'll be asked to tell the truth. You tell the truth. The Spirit asks you to tell the truth. You say, Dwight, I'm not sure what the truth is. And you go to this book and you re-examine it. You pour yourself over. Because, ladies and gentlemen, the final blank, by the way, in our study guide, Martin Luther is absolutely clear. The Protestant reformers are absolutely clear. I don't have to tell you a thing. The two blanks, Martin Luther and the Protestant reformers clearly identified the papacy in Rome as the Antichrist power. Now, I'm going to have to... I'm going to open my heart up here in just a moment. But I need to say before I open my heart up, you know what that means. That means that left behind is unwittingly a dangerous smokescreen that cloaks the very truth that the blood of the reformers and martyrs was paid to tell. And that is the truth that the Antichrist is not someone yet to come, but that it is a power already come, for it is here today. And beneath the folds of its ecclesiastical robes, there lies hidden the deadly sword that shall yet be plunged into the heart of earth's last civilization. Revelation 13, verse 3. And the whole world was amazed and followed after the Antichrist. The whole world. So I'm going to ask you, my friend, whom... Whom would you follow? Who are you going to follow? I know that there's some of you watching right now on television. Some of you listening right now on the radio. There's some of you worshiping here right now who are encountering this truth for the very first time. You've never heard a whisper of this before. I'm telling you what, my friend. I need you to know that this truth is not about you. This truth is not about a person. It's not about a neighbor. It's not about a colleague. It's not about, it's not about somebody in another city. It's not about a person at all. This is about a power. This is about an institution. It's not about individuals. It's a sad scriptural truth about a religious political power that has exerted an enormous influence on the history of Christianity and just before the return of Christ will reassert itself and the whole world will wonder after that power. It's not about you. Jesus is coming soon. This I know. The question is, whom would you follow then? And so I earnestly appeal to my friends within that communion. I don't want you to take a single word you have heard today. Don't take my word for it at all. But I want to invite you to take this book and passionately plead before God to lead you in a journey here and ask Him to reveal to you what is true. Jesus said, if you know the truth, the truth will set you free. The apocalypse cries out to the innocent adherents within this communion. It cries out, come out of her, my people, that you be not partakers of her sins and her plagues. Come out. There comes a point when you're going to have to re-decide whom to follow. You know, I was just reading, I just finished this last week, the book of Jeremiah. 
And I came across Jeremiah chapter 33, verse 3. It's in your study guide, by the way. But I'm putting my hand and my finger now on Jeremiah 33, verse 3. And I'm claiming this. And I want to invite those of you watching on television, claim this same text. Jeremiah 33, 3. God cries out, Call to me, and I will answer you. And I will tell you great and mighty things which you do not know. You may not have a clue, but if you will ask me, call to me. And I will tell you great and mighty things. I will teach you. Jesus said in John 16, verse 13, But when the Spirit of truth comes, how did He put it? He will guide you. He will guide you into all truth. Martin Luther, who once stood all alone before that Antichrist power and had to defend his faith in the Word of God with nobody standing beside him. Martin Luther once cried out these words, Here I stand. I can do no other. May God help me. Amen. And I say, May the God of John and Daniel and Paul and Martin help you and me to do the same. We must stand for Him. God help us. Amen. Let us pray. O oh God, O oh Father, for some this is brand new. For others, it's a long-forgotten truth. But for all of us, it is present truth. Biblical truth whose time has come. And so, dear God, I earnestly pray for every man, woman, young adult, and child who has been, over the last few moments, exposed to this truth. Holy Father, please, teach him, teach her, that she might know the truth that the truth might set her free, that it might set him free. Oh God, the crimson pathway that stretches behind us has been consecrated by the feet of men and women who discovered this truth and paid the ultimate price that we too might know the truth. Please, for all of us, Grant the courage and the holy boldness to say, here I stand, so help me God. Amen.